to another episode of our Puget Systems Podcast live Q&A show. This week, we're joined by Gino Rosario. He is one of our tech consultants, um, like Jared a few weeks ago, but with a little bit of a special sauce because uh, Gino also came through our support department. So we get kind of a two-for-one deal this week. And so I'm really excited, as, as I usually am for these sorts of things. I'm always very excited to talk to new people. So welcome, Gino. Um, I also like to do, because since you're new here, uh, go ahead and give us a little intro about who you are and what you do, your little background and that sort of thing um yeah so my name is Gino Rosario I, I started with the company I think about to 2016 somewhere around there so it's been a while um I started on the support team first um I was there for about two and a half years and then Wilson who runs the consulting team um asked if I'd be interested in coming upstairs and working with them so yeah cool. that's what we got some from the support team um but and I still work in the support team very frequently. Um, I fill in when they're shorthanded or um, I work in there at least twice a month, sometimes more if, if they need the manpower. Um, so I still maintain a, a good, healthy relationship with my friends over on the support team. Cool. Right on. Um, one of the things I know we want to talk to you about, because uh, prior like during our setup prior to the going live today, uh, you mentioned that you are running all of this off of your MacBook. And we do have, we do often have uh, customers who have spent years on the, you know, Apple platform or, or Mac OS uh, sort of ecosystem. And, and, because of the better performance that comes with the hardware that also comes with Windows, they're making that move. And so do you have any thoughts or, or um, I guess a little background on some of your own experience working with both and then also how that helps customers? Yeah, um, so I try not to get too caught up in the whole like Mac versus PC war because everybody feel, it feels like everybody's got like a really strong opinion on which one is better. Sure. But, um, I've always been kind of the opinion that like, they each one of them is capable of doing a very specific job very well. Mm -hmm. But if you want a more versatile machine, you tend to go more for a PC. Um, Macs are really great for working with audio work, which we've talked about, you and I have talked about, and um, they're really great at some some very, very specially focused design jobs and very specific sets of software that aren't available anywhere else. Um, but it's not too bad to cross over from a Mac, from a PC to a Mac these days, or I'm sorry, vice versa, from a Mac to a PC, um, just because uh, a lot of the software still uses the same file types. Um, there's a lot of hardware that's intercompatible between the two. Um, it's not as scary to cross over as you might think. Cool. What, what tends to be the, the biggest hurdle? Um, the biggest hurdle that I come across is um, Thunderbolt reliance. So there's some people who like to do some daisy chaining of Thunderbolt devices. And since Thunderbolt is kind of, it, it's not, it hasn't been as available on PC as long. 
some of those daisy chain features don't really care over, carry over to PC very well. Um, mm. And some people will, they kind of tend to get, um, the people who are attached to Thunderbolt get attached to Thunderbolt for like uh, external raids. Um, oh, sure. It's, it's uh, a pretty nice feature to have for external raids. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the hangups we get there is that since if you have a Mac formatted drive, obviously it's not going to work without in Windows without some sort of assistance or a bridge software or something like that. So that seems to scare some people off. Um, but again, it I would say that that's not that common that we come across that. So um, for the most part, most Mac users crossing over to PC won't have very much trouble. Oh, that's that's good to hear. I know I know that that I mean just in general the the unfamiliarity of heck I mean just something as simple as like the X is off in the upper right corner instead of in the upper left like it it, it can be weird. It's not what you're used to and and it's it's tough for people sometimes. Oh yeah, I've heard stories of people who thought that all F4 on Windows was the equivalent of of uh, Apple Quit or Apple Cube on a Mac. <laughs> oh man, the hard way that that's not Oops. how that works. <laughs> but for the most part, a lot of the shortcut keys are pretty similar. I mean, copying is still Control C, just like it's Apple C on a Mac. Pasting is Control V and Apple V, so it's not like they're that far off from each other. It just takes a little bit of getting used to. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good to hear though that it's not too much of a struggle. Like, because um, it's it's until I feel like until Apple really kind of refocuses back to their content creation sort of roots, um, it's just going to be either people are going to kind of suffer along or they're they'll make the move. So I would say I feel like a lot of the changes, a lot of the people that were crossing over from PCs started to happen when um, Apple started insisting on using Xeons in some of their hardware. And while Xeons are really good for a very specific kind of processing power, it's not as flexible as something like a Ryzen or even an Intel Core might be. So sure, we're sure. hearing some of those, some of those, some of that feedback. I don't want to say complaints, but some of that feedback when we were having people cross over. Yeah, yeah, right on. You did mention too that uh, Apple is really good with the audio side of things, and I know you have uh, some personal experience with that sort of content creation. Um, do you find, as from either a support or um, consulting side of things, is that do we get a lot of questions about from audio engineers or DJs or those sorts of things? Yeah, um, we do get quite a few. I would say we get a few, at least four or five dog questions a, a month, inquiries a month, um, if not more. Those are just the ones that get sent over to me. But sure. Um, <clears throat> Um, a lot of that is um, questions about will some of their Mac hardware carry over. And some of that stuff is not. Um, so, for example, I guess um, a lot of people who work with DAWs tend to have their own external audio cards because they're using an interface through like either a MIDI keyboard or studio monitors that don't really work via normal um, PC plugs. So, like, mm-hmm. you can't use nice, fancy studio monitors with a headphone jack, right? You have to have a more substantial audio card than just plugging in studio monitors with a headphone jack. Um, and some of those people, they're kind of attached to these extra peripherals in the audio world that, they, that they're that they scared to move over because they don't know if they are or aren't compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get I get a lot of those kind of questions. Can I, If I work with a PC, can I still use my audio card? Can I still plug in my studio monitors? Can I still do this? Can I still do that? Um, I would say like 80% of the time, well, more like 90% of the time, most of the stuff that they can use can still 
carry over to the PC side. It's just some of that nerves and, and like unfamiliarity with it. Sure. I mean, and that's, that's, I can see where that'd be a big concern. I mean, I'm about to, if I'm considering spending, I don't know, 5,000 plus on a PC, uh, actually maybe less for an audio thing. What we don't really have much, actually, I don't think we have any sort of data whatsoever when it comes to audio, uh, like DAWs, digital, what does this stand for again? Digital audio audio workstation. workstation. So it's DAW is usually for like the whole thing, but people have started to like short term use the word DAW for like, just an audio audio hardware, I guess. Okay, so so just that re- generally refers to the hardware. Yeah. Okay. Um, how do you handle that? Like, what what sort of advice do you have toward um, like a spe- uh, I guess a configuration toward that sort of work? Um, one of the first questions I ask for someone who's crossing over doing audio work is what kind of audio work you're doing. Because if you're doing like some hardcore mastering. Or um, like mixing down of previous someone's work that you're trying to clean up or or add um, quality to or processing to, then it's quite a bit different than someone that's plucking in their guitar and recording their voice with their guitar. Oh, okay. So, um, if someone who's doing some professional mastering is going to want something closer to like either a Ryzen 16 core or like a Threadripper style system with more cores and more RAM. Whereas someone who's doing just kind of raw plugging in your guitar and recording yourself singing, they're, they're going to want something more like an Intel core or one of the lower core Ryzen's instead. Because it doesn't take that much muscle to just do some recording. Okay. Wow. I'm curious, have, have, uh, what's, is there anyone that stands out in particular without, of course, naming names? But is there, is there any, either like a client that stands out or maybe a, a particular use case that you have heard of that was particularly interesting or challenging for you um yes so i've got i i don't want to i guess i shouldn't name customer names but i have a customer who was out um working in new york who, who i work with pretty frequently um and he is a dj he's a mobile dj so he wanted to get an audio setup system but in a rack so he could carry it around to every nightclub he played at Oh, cool. <laughs> so um, the challenge we were running into was racks are not really friendly for um, for having front audio ports. Oh, sure. It, he had a bunch of different peripherals and stuff that he wanted to use. Um, so we ended up coming up with a, a little weird solution where we had some extra cabling and, and stuff where he could route his devices to the back of his machine. And mm-hmm. I've heard stories over and over about how this particular customer will tell the support team to say hi to me because he's still working with that um, audio uh, uh, rack mount box that he built about three or four years ago and he's still taking it live and he's used it to the point where the thing is full of music and now he needs more hard tracks. Wow. So that's a pretty cool one and I think it's just because I keep hearing from him so I know he's out there still using it and that's pretty cool to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, I often don't, I don't always get that kind of feedback. Usually once someone picks up the system and they're happy with it, I don't, I don't hear unless something's wrong. And then they ask me to rope support him. But that was one of those situations where I continuously hear from him and I continuously hear he's still using the hardware. Hmm, 
Oh, that's cool. Plus, that speaks to our ability to build a, system, a robust system that lasts. Super cool. I like to hear three, four years and it's still going strong. And his only trouble is I'm running out of storage space. That seems pretty good. So, yeah. good, good on you, cool. Gino. I thought right I can't on. imagine carrying a big rack mount to every show. But, hey, if, if, you, if he's that busy, man, yeah. more power to him. Wow. That is pretty cool, though. Right on. I, I don't know if this is going to be a good question for you or not, and so I'm, I'm going to throw it out there just in case. But Dapper Duff on Twitch was asking, on the page for custom servers, how come I don't see any server-grade motherboards, such as servers that have IPMI and remote management? Um, we do have one on there. I believe that's a WRX80, the Threadripper Pro. That one does have some remote management options in there. If I remember right. Oh, I want to take a peek at our server listing too because I'm curious about that. We, we have WRC some on boards that have some IPMI and remote management as well, but I just can't remember them off the top of my head. And I'm okay. kind of I'm scared to click off of these windows here. <laughs> um, no worries. Um, I'm not sure how to tell just from looking at the, the configuration page, but uh, Dapper Duff, I will recommend that you do um, – if you already own a system from us, uh, a conversation with support would be a good way to start. Or if not, um, a consultant like Gino will be able yeah, to help you yeah. a little a little more specific than we can cover here on the, on the stream right now. But thank you for asking, because um, I know that a few of my colleagues, our colleagues, are in here as well. And we may be able to get you uh, some help pretty quick. So thank you for the question. Um, let's see. I'd, I'd like to touch a little more on your own audio background. Like, how, like you, you, you are, <laughs> so, were a DJ or, or like? Yes. So um, my mom actually was a DJ before I was a DJ. Oh, so when cool. I was a kid, I used to saw her with the, all these boxes of records and, um, and, uh, and she, I remember her having her turntables and at like a super young age, I was exposed to that. And I remember seeing, um, old DJ competitions. I don't even know if they still do it, but scratch competitions where they would do scratching and they were, they were called the DMCs. Okay. And so I would watch those when I was a kid, when I was younger, like 17, 16. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. They would do crazy stuff. Like they would put a, a, a roll of duct tape on a turntable and then put the record on the duct tape and then flip the needle upside down and play the record upside down. Whoa. <laughs> just just showboating stuff for fun, just to like, just because they could. Yeah. It, it's pretty fascinating stuff to me. So like my whole um, my whole bit with it was like, I was fascinated with just pure turntablism, like okay. scratching and manipulating records by hand. And then that evolved into, um, seeing some turntable DJs at some music venues or some music shows that I went to when I was younger too. And then that exploded into me falling into this whole DJing thing. And then I did that for a long time from geez, age 19 to age 35. I think it was. Wow. So I did it for a very long time. And, uh, but uh, then I, I had kids and then uh, it's harder to justify being out of town a lot when you have kids that are growing up. So at some point, the fun had to end and then kind of it changes from doing um, live shows to doing more stuff like I wanted to do and stuff I was doing at home for a bit, which is drum machines and manipulating like a native instrument machine MK3 with a 
with where it's more of a hybrid um, drum machine slash software production all tied into one. Ooh. But it still has all the velocity sensitive touch pads that all those famous producers making beats in the 90s used to do with their fingers. So okay. it's pretty fun stuff, but there's a natural evolution to it from being obsessed with DJing as a kid to growing older and making more time at home playing with drum machines. So oh, that's, cool. that's been my, my evolution with music. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. I also wanted to say, um, I don't know how, uh, let me see how I phrase this. I know that you used to uh, curate the Puget Systems playlist on Spotify. Um, is that still a thing? I think it's still a thing. It's not maintained as much because I think someone <laughs> someone locked out the account. But um, I oh, have no. been meaning to get in there and tinker with it and see who has control of it. Because I'm not sure who does. I think it's Eric. But oh, maybe. Um, we, I might reach out to Eric and see if I can get that going again. But yeah, every month I would, um, since I have a lot of subscriptions to music where um, I get curated music where I've never heard it before. So I was intentionally, like, uh, for example, Spotify's Discover Weekly is mm-hmm. one of my favorite ones because it will curate music for you that you've never saved or played before. So every Monday it's 50 tunes that you've never saved or played. And chances are there's something you've never heard in there. Cool. So I will and, go ahead. Oh, is it and it's and it I imagine it it looks at stuff you're you do listen yeah, to. Yeah, to so develop. things that you saved or played throughout the week before that one Monday, then um, things that were played, it will try and match you with similar things, but something you haven't played yet. So if you ever added it to a playlist, it's it's taken off that list. You know, you won't go there. So I get fascinated with these music services that have these curated playlists. So I have one for Spotify. I have one for Tidal. I have one for Apple Music. Oh, wow. I have one for like multiple services. And then what I was doing is I was taking all those new tunes I never heard of. And of course, picking the more work-friendly ones <laughs> and um, blending them into the Puget playlists. Yeah. And so yeah. that's where I was getting all those from. Okay, that's pretty cool. Right on. Oh, do you do you create your own music anymore? Um, I do. I'm still. I just started uploading them to SoundCloud, but I'm not confident enough to share them yet. Okay. I share them with a significant other, and she gets a kick out of them. But I'm not ready for other things yet. Other people don't see them yet. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. Yes, that is true. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what Wilson is saying. Yes, yes, too. Favorite rocket NVMe SSDs. Yeah. Um. I think Wilson's answering answering the IPMI remote management. Oh, I see. Okay. Um. And then, so yeah, Dapper Duff asks, are there plans for separate rocket NVMe SSDs, such as higher read write storage drives? Um, I believe I heard some whispers about that, but I will let our official announcements take over because uh, for that one, because I don't know exactly when that's happening, but I've heard some whispers about some more higher capacity NVMEs coming down the pipe for us. Mm-hmm. The same. Um, I know it will. I know in the past we've occasionally used the like four terabyte rockets in the past, but when I was still in production, which was a few years ago so they they're there but i think there was a very particular use or reason for them 
Um, but again, I'm not sure. I don't have a whole lot of fingers into the product development. And, and I know it's hard stuff. to say it because it's like, I know I've heard about it, but I don't know how much I can talk about it yet. But right. um, yeah, I've heard some murmurs of our team talking about had, adding higher capacity drives. Because mm -hmm. two terabytes, quite honestly, for 6K and 8K video editing customers is... It's, a, it's not very much. So sometimes we'll get asked if we can raid them, which we don't officially support right now just because NVMe raid is not in a great place. So, um, and we don't want to pass that kind of frustration on to our customers. So we just kind of, we don't support it at this time. But in exchange, we've been looking at higher capacity NVMe's. Yeah, yeah. So I also, um, uh, I'm, again, I'm, I'm a little, I have, sometimes I have trouble figuring out how to phrase a certain question. I get caught up. Um, I'd like to go a little, assume, hang on, assuming it's not part of public releases, assuming this could be for a custom solution. I'm going to put a very soft maybe out on there. Um, uh, again, a, a conversation with either a Gino, either maybe after an email back and forth or something, maybe after yeah, this. Um, um, if you can get if you can get an email over to sales at pugetsystems.com, I'll get that question answered for you. But I, again, thank you so much for asking because um, these are things that uh, you know we wouldn't have wouldn't have touched on otherwise. So thank you. Um, I'd like to kind of go a little different with this with this next topic because it's not going to be related to like workflows and, and use cases and things like that. And that's and that is parenting. And technology. Uh, you had an article you published, I think, earlier this year um, on the topic. And I'm curious, well, let's do a little summary of that. And then if things have changed, and I guess I'd just kind of like to dive into that a little bit, because I, I have some kids of my own, and it's a struggle. <laughs> it <is. laughs> um, so yeah, so I wrote in my article, I was going over some assisting tips, because it never ceases to amaze me how many parents don't know that they have these kinds of tools at their disposal, just because either the people that provide these, these this hardware for them don't tell them, or they just didn't know it existed, or they just didn't know that that's a thing that's possible. Mm -hmm. um, but the article I wrote goes over um, how to set limits on in a couple different ways, how to set limits on internet usage, how to set limits on console usage, because a lot of kids play console games, right? Hmm? Um, and yeah, yeah, there's a link right there. And then um, it's um, one of my favorite tools is getting in at the router level and um, assigning individual um, MAC addresses because every device has a MAC address, right? Mm -hmm. So assigning individual MAC address to profiles. So the way we have it set up at home is we have my significant other and five children. So there's a lot of kids. Um, and I have it set up in a way where if there's a profile for each person in the house, then there's a separate profile for automated things in the house, like Alexa lights or um, random things that don't belong to anybody. And we call yeah. the household profile. So that one never has any limits. Hmm. But for every, every child in the house, their devices get to assign to their profile. And then their profiles have awake times and night times. We have a five-year-old in the house, too, where we kind of limit hers more than everyone else because she's five, sure. and uh, she can't stay up as long as big brothers can. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we got to get her to bed a little bit earlier sometimes. Um, yeah. so we have you, you can tune these individually to fit the need of each kid. And so, for example, we have the five-year-old start or end time closer to 9 o'clock at night, where right. everything, she can't connect to anything at night. 
and that's it. And then she knows usually like clockwork at eight fifty nine <laughs> downstairs getting ready for bed because she knows my stuff is off. It's time to start winding down and heading to bed. And we do the same thing for the teenagers. There's there's end times a little bit later than the five year olds, obviously. But it's the same basic premise: is you can go into your router, make a profile, and add devices to each profile. And if you stay on top of that and make sure that any new devices that come in are properly assigned to a profile, then you have this list of things that are attached to each kid. And instead of having to manage each device, you're literally just tapping on a profile. And then everything attached to it will be either on or off. And if they don't decide they don't want to do their chores, guess what? Someone's getting their profile paused. <laughs> That's right. I love, uh, I've, I've done something similar. Like um, when, the, when the girls have had friends over, I, I'm looking at the list of new devices that have connected to the network. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is their friend. And so all of their friends are under their profile. So if things start getting too rowdy, Yep. And, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> some kids don't need that, but it, some kids do. Some kids, I mean, what are teenagers known for? They're known for pushing those boundaries as, as much as they can sometimes. And sometimes mm-hmm. just setting this up in a proper way so that the boundary is very clear and they know exactly what time their stuff turns off every night, then it just kind of helps build a routine for our house. And that's what's worked for us. Yeah. I, uh, I like it a lot. It, it has helped quite a bit. Um, to kind of help manage that screen time a little bit. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I've shown um, so many parents how to do this too. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it goes it goes further than that too. I mean, that's that's great for just like, um, worth mentioning that these features are often included in most modern routers. Yes. Yeah, they are. Yes. So, this, so we were specifically talking about the, um, like the Comcast Xfinity router. We'll have mm-hmm. like an app and, or with the web, um, the web tool to fiddle with those things. But yeah, most modern, uh, routers will have a way of setting up certain, you can isolate different devices and, and timings and profiles. Heck, even to a certain extent, if you get really deep into it, you can um, block certain apps, certain websites from mm-hmm. from even just loading. Like if I wanted to, I can just say, nope, you can't talk to TikTok anymore. Yep. <laughs> you can add it by domain and just be like, nope, sorry, facebook.com is not accessible on this router. I like that. It's a lot. And that gets a little deep. That gets a little fiddly to get into specific like sites or apps like that. But um, but even beyond that, there's um, parental controls for like YouTube. If you don't want your little kid just searching around YouTube in general, because um, that can be a little sketchy. There's YouTube kids and also from their you know, parental controls in that sense. Um, man, in I think the biggest thing is just kind of pay attention for for me. Yeah. I'm I'm always wondering like, oh hey, because I'm always curious what the new thing is that things are, kids are playing with. You know, either Snapchat or TikTok or like I saw the evolution of Vine to Musically to TikTok and that kind of stuff is is really fun to watch. Yeah, I think nothing will ever like even if you get all these things in place and sometimes well, I guess you can call them restrictions, but restrictions in place or monitoring stuff in place, nothing is ever going to replace you actually paying attention to what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's, always, it's always helpful to have some rails so that everyone knows what the expectation is. That way you're not every night trying to say the same thing over and over. <laughs> Everybody needs to know what's expected of them around a certain time. So I think I think you and I are about the the same age, close enough to to 
to where we both remember a time before the internet, right? <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, do you think, so I, I grew up like very skeptical of, of the internet, what, what I was reading, the people I was talking to, things like that. Um, do you, and uh, was it similar for you? Oh yeah. Yeah. For me, it was like the way that, that the kids are now, especially my teenagers where they're just like, they talk to anybody and everybody on there. And I always assume that the person on the other end is not actually who they say they are, but I think that's just, I think that's our generation of being told that the internet is not a safe place. Yeah. So yeah. It, it might just be a generational thing, but I just grew up like, you never know who the, if the other person on the other side is actually who they say they are, they're probably mm-hmm. not. So yeah. <laughs> that's something I've come up against too, is like, like it blows my mind how many kids use their full names as their screen. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, I remember when I was setting up the kids' Xbox accounts and stuff. I I remember I remember seeing other kids with their names in their profiles, and then I I remember multiple times I've had to tell their parents like you probably don't want their your kid's name in their profile. So right? our kids even to this day they're teenagers and they still don't use their names online. It's just a safety thing, really. Right? Oh, it's it, yeah, that kind of blows my mind a bit. It's, that was that was a weird one too. I think it was our generation that was like bred on that paranoia of the internet. <laughs> right. I mean, and and I get it. I get how where things are a little bit more like kind of blase or casual with it. Like you know, when we were young, you'd never get into the get into a car with a stranger. And now I literally call up any random stranger to take myself to wherever <laughs> I want to go. You know, and it's, it's kind of right uber like it's just it's a super never get into a car with stranger and now we have an app for that now i pay people i pay strangers to drive me someplace and it's just strange it's kind of interesting how um how things have changed and it's 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 technology it's so much more accepted like in normal everyday use than it was for us yeah that's for sure man uh <laughs> Dapper Duff said, "Well, what about me? My username is my last name." <laughs> oh, I mean, right? very oh, Dapper. No, Dapper so, I do like the question he had prior to that. Uh, yes, how does Puget Systems manage users that make modifications to their systems, such as additional SSDs, hard drives, or even memory upgrades, such as when a user sends a claim on their warranty for a repair or upgrade? So, um, if you decide to add your own components, you can. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing that violates the warranty for doing so. Um, you know, if there is an issue down the road with a component, and then it deci- it's once we do a little bit of digging and we work with you, we try to determine if it's our hardware. If it's not our hardware, then we can't do as much to replace things that aren't that don't belong to us. But if there's nothing wrong with replacing or upgrading your own peripherals, in fact, a lot of customers do that. Sure, so it's sure. totally an okay thing to do. From a support standpoint, how 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 is that handled? Say, okay, I bought my computer three four years ago, and I swapped out the graphics card, and now, um, say say the graphics the graphics card I swapped out is the problem. Where do you go from there? Um, for cases that I've gotten like that, um, if 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 the hardware is something that they've added that's not the problem, we actually go through a, a full. We treat it like the problem could possibly be ours first. Sure. We always assume that if there's a problem, it's one of it's something that we need to hash out. And then once we get down to the process and we have a graphics card that's causing blue screens, if we will try to assist. So we'll try to do some driver updates. We'll try to sort of throw some things at it. Um, but if it persists and it is not our hardware, 
then our recommendation is usually to have you replace it on your own. Okay. And would that be, could, could we offer the replacement? In that, we can. In that case? We can. They, it happens sometimes. People will sometimes buy a, a different graphics card from us in, in a situation like that. Um, but it's really up to the customer. Sometimes they prefer to buy something where they don't have to wait for it. They want to go get it right now. They need it working right now. So they rush to Best Buy to go do it or something like that. It just depends on the circumstances, kind of your, um, on a case-by-case basis. If they have mm-hmm. time to let us ship them something, we prefer that they buy the component from us that way, if there's something like proper bracing that needs to go with it, um, if it's a different size card, for example, then the then the existing bracing might not be adequate or it might not fit at all. Mm-hmm. So um, there's just those little extra things that we try and take into consideration. And if we can help and we can t- make the whole experience complete, then we prefer to do it. Nice. Are we able to facilitate any sort of help with, like, say, an RMA on a product that isn't ours, that we did not sell? Um, we have in the past, um, although I have to talk to the support team because I believe some of that has changed recently. Okay. Um, and I don't get to spend full time down on the support team, so I don't okay. – sometimes I, I get I forget some of these things. But um, from what I can tell, we do not often RMA – parts outside of our warranty, you have to kind of do that on your own. Okay. But it's, again, it's a case-by-case basis. If we can do it, we'll try to do it. But if we can't, there's only so much we can do. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Right on. Um, I'd like to touch on, since since you do kind of dabble in, in both worlds there, how has your experience, and I suppose continuing experience, uh, in support helped facilitate your relationships with um, current and potential customers? Oh, yeah. So from a support perspective, sometimes I can tell when customers are going to try it when they want to do something that I know is going to cause a headache down the road. Um, Like a a popular one is when they tell me they're going to try and add hard drives to set up a specialized RAID down the road. Mm -hmm. And so I try to cut those things off the head early. (laughs) Like I'm like, you can do this, but what are you really trying to achieve? Because chances are you probably don't need to do that. Um, and you're just opening yourself up to more issues down the road with a specialized raid if you don't if you weren't the one that set it up and you try to add it later and there's multiple places that that could go wrong so i think my my it the calls the the things that have resulted in really long calls for me and support tend to be the things that i'm like talking to customers about you probably don't want to do that this is what's happened to me when i've helped customers with similar situations what are you really trying to do let's see if we can do it a different way um that helps a lot (laughs) yeah um i'm curious how how so sometimes a customer will have kind of a, a thought or a a goal, a solution to what they're trying to accomplish in mind that may somewhat conflict with our experience or um, kind of collective knowledge and stuff. How do you adjust that? How do you kind of like steer them toward the best possible outcome? Um, okay, so sometimes one one of my favorite situations like that that happens reasonably regularly is when someone calls us for a gaming system. Sure. And they want a gaming system, but when I look at what they saved, they didn't really save a gaming style system. They saved the Threadripper Pro with 256 gigs of RAM and a and an A6000 graphics card. And I'm like, wow. 
I'm like, what are you trying to achieve first? Well, I want a game. Well, what resolutions are you trying to achieve in your gaming? Well, I just want to do some 4K. Are you doing high refresh rates? No, not really. So 4K 60? Yes. You don't need a multi-thousand dollar Threadripper for that. You need something more in line with like a Ryzen, a Ryzen 16 or a Ryzen 12. Or if if you're never planning on going past 4K 60 frames, then you might even be fine with something like an Intel Core, which is significantly cheaper than a a Threadripper Pro by like a quarter. So it really comes down to like hearing what they're trying to do and kind of Seeing what with what they put together aligns with what they're trying to do, and if it doesn't, trying to get those two things to be in the same vision. Okay, okay. Is it is it sometimes tough? Do they, like is it often? I guess how often do they really dig their heels in and be like, no, this is what I want? Actually, surprisingly, we don't get too much pushback because it feels like a lot of customers seem to understand that we post a lot of our benchmarks, we post a lot of our data, we don't hide anything, we freely share the information that we've come across. We're not commission people, so we're not trying to push you into the most expensive system. We're always trying to put you into the right system. And um, they seem to trust us that we're not trying to oversell them on something and they kind of tend to they kind of tend to be okay with our opinions. I'd say it's really rare that I have someone that just doesn't want to listen to our suggestions. And in those That's kind of cases, we, I try to tell them, hey, you can have that. If this is what you want, go for it. But if you're trying to achieve this, this might be overkill for what you're doing. And I just want to be very clear about that. And it's really rare that someone will say, nope, I want it anyway. Most of the time they're like, okay, well then how about you build it the way I, it should be built? And then I will save a quote and put it in their account for them to view. And they, they can usually look at how much different my build was than theirs. And I'd say like half the time it's usually quite a bit less expensive. I was just about to ask, how often do you, do you see sort of um, overbuilt configurations? Um, it's, it's pretty, it's common. I would, I would say it doesn't happen every day, but it's common enough that, um, if they come in with a specific, specific software set and we get into specific questions, I would say, I'd say maybe like 20, 30% of the time I can tune it a little bit more specifically and then get some extra money off of it that they probably weren't going to ever use anyway. Like if someone's buying a, a Threadripper, a non-pro Threadripper, just a Threadripper for, 4K, you don't you don't need to spend the extra fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred dollars on a CPU for that. So you'll be perfectly happy with an eight or twelve core system. And usually when I tell people that, they're like, You want me to spend less? I'm like, yes. They're like, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's not that part of a push. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I imagine so. You know, I mean, heck, because like you just said, twelve hundred dollars, that's that's a chunk. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then Uh, I usually kind of tell people, too, like you're going to have some time with it in the field before we do our reach out because we do kind of follow ups after 30 days now. And so um, they'll come from directly from us if we sold it to them. Like if I sold you something, the email will come from me saying, hey, it's been about a month. How's the machine running? Is it meeting your expectations? And then they will tell me around then if it is or isn't. And I've rarely, if I haven't come back with a single one yet since we started that program where they said this isn't working for us. Oh, so that's cool. It, it, we get that feedback. But um, but it's it's pretty easy to kind of match what they're trying to do with the hardware. It just all comes down to asking the right questions. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Man, I have to say that, that is a good 
it all comes down to asking the right questions. That is a, I think that is a huge part. I've have some tech support background, like phone phone tech support stuff, and that was something that early on that they they would that they kind of taught us was, you know, somebody might have the a problem, but isn't but that isn't necessarily describing like the actual cause, right? Like, oh, I can't play DVDs. And you'll go down this path of questioning, and then it turns out there's like a sandwich in the DVD player or something. <laughs> and you never got to that because you're just bouncing around to other possible questions. Um, or when you do have a lot of tech experience, sometimes you jump to a really complicated sort of um, solution when it was something as simple as like a cable is unplugged. Mm. And so it's it's a, that is a really good point to asking the right questions. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of questions that the consultants try to ask to try and get as much information as we can. Because I know for me and my fellow consultants, we're often really paranoid about not asking enough or the right questions. Mm. And so um, Jeff from our team, um, every week, Jeff, uh, our um, lead, will go over previous bills that we've done the week before, even after the bills have already been purchased. Because even after we've purchased, if after they purchase it and they've gone through the whole consultation process, we will still, after the order's done, go give it one more look over before it goes to the production team for building, and say, did we miss? Did we maybe miss anything here? Did we? Do we need to? Did we get all the pieces? Because I mean, sometimes there's some things some some of us might miss, but we're completely dedicated to making sure that we have as much information as we can to make the right choices. I like that. It's so cool. I love working for these guys. It's so much fun. <laughs> uh, GM Ricks on YouTube has maybe a, a, well, well, we'll throw this out there. He says with new M.2 SSDs and SATA SSD sizes, would you recommend I, oh, this is a secondary part. I'm sorry. Let me start over. I have a mini SAS RAID 5 setup from seven plus years ago. So serial attached SCSI. Uh, I'm in the early process of getting a new PC for through y'all. Um, I do mostly AE and C4D, so After Effects and Cinema 4D on a daily basis and use the RAID as a project volume. <gasps> With new M.2 SSDs and SATA SSD sizes, would you recommend I switch to just a large SSD drive for project volume and get rid of the RAID or something else? Um, it's hard for me to suggest getting rid of a RAID because I don't know what's on it. <laughs> sure. Um, but our, our typical structure usually involves um, one larger SSD M.2 as a secondary just for your project, and then a primary where the applications and the operating system lives. So um, if we don't typically set up RAIDs anymore just because there, it introduces a variable that you some, may not have control of, and it's just an awful feeling when a RAID fails in the middle of your work a year down the line. Um, so to avoid stuff like that, we usually suggest um, uh, a larger secondary SATA or M.2 SSD. And so I'm. I don't have a lot of experience with raids in my my own self. Would it be possible to transfer all of that to a single drive? Yes, if the single drive is large enough. Okay. Oh, I missed the part here where it says the current rate is four three and a half one terabyte drives for a three terabyte volume. Yeah, there should, um, especially since we should be offering some larger volume um, M.2s in the fairly near future, which if you can email sales at Puget Systems, I'll try and get a date because I don't have a date quite off the top of my head. But I know that's in the pipeline. So if there there should be some four terabyte size M.2s coming in the near future, which should allow you to migrate your information from that RAID you've got set up, JMRICs, 
over to your secondary, which is the preferred way to go about it anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I need. I think I should poke Matt a little bit to write up an official kind of redux of. Um, he did a video and I think an article that went with it about like the optimal setup for your content creation pipeline. I think is the right term, um, and I think it still references like mechanical drives and things like that. So mm, I, yeah. I feel like. And I do, I do often see some questions about like, hey, well, what if I only have just one big drive? Like, what do I do then? So maybe we, we may need to update that if we're going to be putting out large volume M.2s. So, yeah, and a lot of the reasons for people sticking by RAIDs, too, is because RAIDs with mechanicals used to provide a little bit of a speed increase. But with sure. the rise of M.2s, it's really not necessary at this point anymore. If that's the primary motivation for a RAID, then an M.2 should render that null. Yeah. Yeah, heck, almost even just a regular SSD. I mean, mm-hmm. this is that SSD at 600 megs a second will be faster than mechanical RAID. For sure, for sure. So, I always like this one. In the what are what are you most excited about in the near future? Let's say the next year coming up, and then let's go a little further and say maybe five years. Technology, pop culture, whatever. What are you most excited about coming up on the horizon? <laughs> Um, I am, one of the things I'm kind of fascinated with right now is Intel. Um, Mm. I think it's because there's been such a larger share of, I'm trying to put this diplomatically, but there's been such a larger share of AMD systems going out the door lately for us in comparison that, um, I kind of want to see what Intel's response is going to be in the immediate near future. That's my fascination at the moment, because I feel like when everyone's competing, the consumer wins, right? Because prices, you don't, Intel prices don't get stale. Everybody's competing. Someone's trying to offer something better or stronger than the next guy, which I think is great. Um, That's one of the cool things I'm watching right now to see how that whole Intel versus AMD thing plays out. Because right now, AMD's doing pretty well for themselves. And I'd love to see how Intel comes back from that. Um, Further down the road, I think, uh, goodness gracious, Um, I personally am looking on a personal level. Um, I have have had some feelings of changing hobbies in in the near future. So I used to play a lot of online games like Warcraft and, um, to a lesser extent, a long time ago, EverQuest and MMO. Yes. <laughs> but um, those are time sinkers. So I've been looking for some other things to to kind of change things up, to change my gaming habits up. My significant other and I have been playing a lot of Destiny and. Um, so on a personal level, some fun changes are coming along the way for, for how I play video games and stuff like that, because that's how I like to spend my spare time. And then I've got a teenager who's fairly close to graduating, which is my second graduating teenager now. Pretty proud of that. Pretty proud of that. Um, and then, um, gosh, that's my that's my biggest focus right now in life. Um, but on the technology side, definitely this Intel versus AMD thing. The, for me, sure. this is really fascinating right now. Yeah, yeah. What about Intel's graphics cards? Intel versus AMD um, slash yes. NVIDIA. I feel like they've got, to, they've got to compete. And I feel like this whole entry into dedicated GPUs should be interesting, too. I'm excited. I And I think... I vaguely recall some sort of leak that puts it in puts it in league with around the 3070. Ah. That sort of mid-range, maybe low to upper yeah, mid-range level. is up too. Like it's not quite at 3080, 3090 level, but it's like stronger than an R9, a Radeon R9, but it's not as strong as a 3080, like some weird thing in between. 
which if that if that is the case i think that is their strongest like attack would be to hit that sort of mid-range um almost general purpose sort of application would be super duper i'm i'm stoked i kind of hope they have like a blue shroud or something just like, <laughs> keep it the intel theme. i think it'd be neat it would set them oh, apart man. as ridiculous as some of these component packages are <laughs> i wouldn't put it past them exactly <laughs> and i know you could have seen this but i don't know if some of our viewers have but the boxes for the for like the threadripper cpus like the packaging is like <laughs> it's massive it's just obnoxious <laughs> The worst, the worst so far, I think, was that dodecahedron case from the, I think it was the nine thousand series, ninety nine hundred K, I think it was. Yeah, that was silly, man. Five, five of those fit into a box, <laughs> like a, like a, a a warehouse, like because they wouldn't sell them tray or so. I don't know, whatever. That was weird. Yeah, it uh, was kind of strange. Oh, we got some questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, Ethelbert Coyote. Super cool on uh, on YouTube asks uh, you touched on thread ver- thread ripper versus thread ripper pro. What exactly is the DCC use case for normal thread ripper now? Um, I'm not sure what is DCC. Yeah, I'm not sure about. Um, but I DCC. will say, um, for the people who are leaning into Threadripper Pro right now, the biggest benefit is the usage of ECC RAM. So we're seeing a lot of machine learning stuff, AI stuff, um, calculation centric stuff going through uh, Threadripper Pro at the moment. I think that might have been what they were what they were touching on. Looking at the keyboard, the E and the D are very oh digital content creation. I was going to say oh the D okay. and the E are very close to each other, so I could have <laughs> yeah. I thought you were talking about ECC for a minute there. Um, but um, I still think Red River is still really strong. At, for content creation, I still am suggesting Red River over Red River Pro at the moment. Just because um, it, there are some good use cases for Threadripper Pro, but for content creation, Threadripper Pro feels like diminishing returns a little bit past okay. Threadripper. Um, uh, unless you're doing some really high-end 8K, like Red or Raw or something like that. Um, but right now, um, I'm still using Threadripper over Threadripper Pro. And Threadripper Pro, if it's more um, uh, simulation and calculation-centric with requirements of ECC RAM, then I'll lean into mm-hmm. Threadripper Pro. But they're kind of, yeah. So Wilson was mentioning in there too. The Threader Pro has full slot bandwidth and goes more past 256 gig RAM, which the, the Threadripper cannot. Sure. All right, there we go. And then uh, Leon Leon Parma on Twitch asks, do you think AMD will keep the policy of maintaining the same socket for various generations with their new upcoming socket? Intel's two-generation cycle is king of a letdown for me. You know, I don't know. It's I mean, we can't predict it. It's really tough to predict what's going to happen. Um, but it does feel like AMD will allow a couple, like an extra generation or two before they cross over. I agree. AMD seems to not to at least if if the past is any indication they definitely sit on what works for as long as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, DJ comments. He says also a lot of our consultations are budget limited. If someone's budget could maximize on TR versus TR Pro, it's a strong case to still recommend it. Yeah, it is because Threadripper Pro is is a good chunk heftier in price than the Threadripper. Quite a bit, yeah. So I'm I'm only recommending those in situations where I feel like it's absolutely absolutely warranted. 
Liam process is supposed to be kind of a letdown, but King fits too. <laughs> Honestly, it it does, especially in the last couple generations of of Intel product as a whole. I'm totally okay with saying negative things because I'm the social media guy, and con- <laughs> controversy breeds engagement. So, yeah, yeah, Intel. Intel you can have that some... controversy used then. <laughs> to, to be fair, to be fair, this was in the past. Intel has from the outside made some kind of silly choices in product launches and things like that. I do feel their new boss though has really done a great job in in just this short amount of time of kind of redirecting the boat in a sense. I, I have I feel good about Intel coming up. That's part of why I'm so excited to see what they come up with. Yeah, they're not gonna they're really not cool. gonna take AMD winning on their back. They're gonna do something. Yeah, I'm. I'm really interested to see just how Alder Lake performs. Like, if this, because it's a, this is a whole different way of doing things for Intel, and it could, it could be a big deal. I feel like there's, there's a few things that have to go just right. I think to, to really nail it. But um, it'll be very interesting. We're gonna see some cool stuff come soon. The biggest windfall for us, kind of, well, for me in my cases, in my customers, it happened the second AMD attached Thunderbolt, because at that up until that point, if you needed Thunderbolt, you still had to stick with Intel. But mm-hmm. when the B550 platform was released on the AMD side for Ryzen with Thunderbolt, it was like a bunch of those holdovers just made the jump, and that was it. Yeah. And it just kind of cascaded, and it's just been mostly AMD for me all, a lot. So we'll see what Intel does. I'm really excited about it, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ooh, and uh, we're getting a change in RAM too. That'll be crazy. DDR5 is now finally a thing. Ooh. I know we're always a little bit more cautious when it comes to our RAM changes, but um, I feel like we're a little bit more cautious than other people are sometimes. And yeah. I know that's the case because we get feedback on that. But we try again. We try to be careful. We're not passing down issues or possible potential problems to our customers. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty excited if whenever there's a RAM increase because we don't do that that often around here. <laughs> right, and and it actually does touch on a on a good point there because we uh, we were selling 2666 for a long long time. For a long time. And there was always that pushback of like, well, AMD performs better if you use, you know, overclocked technically overclocked memory and things like that. And we've gone, we've we've done a few tests things and stuff we've done a few articles that show it's not that much of a difference um yeah. and it was really a big deal when i think we now default to 3200 if yes, i'm not 3200 so and that was a big deal like i think we had a big write-up about that too of, of changing over and why it took us so long and and things like that and that's important to point out that puget systems oftentimes does not sell the newest thing right away it'll be there'll be a delay and and it's it's a big shout out to our qualification team josh ruben all those guys because they spend a lot of time testing apart in so many different possible configurations trying to find an issue with it before they will allow it to go on our product line and Mm -hmm. sometimes it can take them weeks sometimes it'll take them months but they do so much work to make sure that there is nothing wrong with this thing before it moves on to the product line. That's right. Reliability first, performance right after that. They're pretty they're pretty even in my mind. But yeah, I think 
it's important. It's important to highlight that because we get some feedback sometimes about like, hey, how come, you know, this has been out for, like you said, like a month or more. Like, how come you're not selling it? And everything. Yeah, when the um, Ryzen systems launch, we got a lot of, why are you still using 2666 when the board says it's, it can take up to 4,000? Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, you could put 4,000 in there, but um, you don't know quite yet. Or none of us know quite yet what problems that might cause down the road until it's gone through enough testing for us to make that leap. And then when we thought a safe leap was going up to 3,200, where it wouldn't affect the stability of the systems. And since stability is so important to us, that's why we're just more slow about making those big jumps. Right. Let's see. Oh, and Leon Parma uh, comments. I think this competition is very positive. For too many years, we had one CPU, one GPU to set the scene. Yes. Now we are seeing real improvements. That is so true because, I mean, with the CPUs especially, I think we were uh, just us as a company we were like, all right, well, this new one's out. Out of 5% gain, not much has changed. And it felt like we had that conversation, like, what, three or four different cycles? We were like, oh, yeah. Three CPU, not much has changed, a few percent faster. That was it. So it, the competition's good. I feel like it's it makes everybody better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was kind of, I want to say. It was years. I around think. the 9,000, I think, was the last really significant like performance increase from from intel from the eight to the nine thousand series and then it felt like incremental changes from nine to ten to eleven and Mm -hmm. it just felt like we're like okay new cpu five percent same as same same core count too well actually we went backwards in core count we did so (laughs) which oh man that is so weird i would love to know more about how how that works from both companies the like amd their even their consumer level uh cpus have have like crazy core counts and, and still maintaining a, a decent clock speed and then intel like you said kind of took a step back almost and i'm just curious how, like is it an engineering thing is it a lithography thing is it a i i'm i'm I keep hearing something about, um, and I got to dig into this because I'm sorry, I'm not educated enough on it, but it was, I kept hearing murmurs about them trying to switch to a new nanometer process, like seven or something like that. And they were having Mm -hmm. trouble with some sort of nanometer process and that caused stalls in their CPUs from what I understand. But Mm -hmm. I'm just talking what I read. So I don't know how much of it is actual fact, but yeah, I'm, I'm really, I mean, that's way beyond <laughs> I, I don't. I don't but really it did. Understand. It did kind of stun us from our team's perspective how we had at least ten cores to work with, and then suddenly, when if you needed Intel, we had a max of eight. Yeah. And we're like, why are we going backwards? Like we just we couldn't understand what was going on. <laughs> I mean, I understand that those cores are faster per core, but it just it didn't feel good from our perspective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. We have a lot of time. Was, oh, yeah. So, uh, Leon Parma uh, comments here in Brazil. We have a lot of fanboy fights over Intel AMD, <laughs> NVIDIA and AMD, basically everything versus everything. Uh, how is it in North America? Uh, I would say I would say most of the fanboy fights I hear around here are Microsoft Xbox versus Sony PlayStation. But here from the from a Puget Systems perspective, I don't think anybody here is really like they they don't really go to battle for their platform just because we get to touch so much technology and get to test and benchmark so much stuff that we're just more interested in what produces the best and what's the most stable than we are allegiance over any specific company. And I think it's a testament to our company because um, I know that 
some important people in our company are sit on Intel boards or in such stuff like that. And mm-hmm. even in that case, we still are offering our customers what's best for them, not not what we have worked with in the past. Yep. I think I think a good example of that is Optane. <laughs> and, and Intel, Intel as a company was was very is was I don't know was, uh, was very adamant about Optane, Optane, Optane. This is a this is a new thing since sliced bread. This is so cool, and uh, internally, and and I do think we did some public testing on it. It just didn't make sense, and so we don't. And and that that guides our path quite a lot. Is we're not going to sell it if it isn't good for for you, the customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another question. Yeah, this one on from John. What's your opinion, future foresight about AMD's graphics cards? Do you think it will ever catch up to NVIDIA the way they caught up to Intel? Um, so that's interesting. I think they're not that far off in my humble opinion. So, I mean, so when the uh, first set of Ryzen's launched, we didn't carry them, right? Because mm-hmm. they were close to Intel, but not enough to make us jump. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it, those graphics cards from AMD are kind of the same boat. They're getting close, but not quite enough for us to jump and offer them yet. So I feel like they're almost there. They benchmark pretty well. But um, but the 3090 still handily beats most of the Radeon cards right now. So I feel like that's probably the, one of the primary motivations on why we haven't jumped. Yeah. And I do think I do think part of that is, especially for the, the markets that we target, um, is because of the, the massive adoption of CUDA. Mm-hmm. NVIDIA puts so much effort into supporting CUDA as a platform and making it easy to use, easy to implement. Um, man, that, that just gave them such a massive advantage because basically all the content creation software uses CUDA at some point or can take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. And I do think with Intel, I think Intel is putting a lot of muscle behind, what is it, OpenCL, I think is mm-hmm. the is the other side half of that. So again, with Intel's entry into the graphics card space and their their support of OpenCL, I think we might see it'll take a little while, but I think it'll it'll help. Yeah, there are um, another benefit for sticking with uh, in, or Intel GeForce cards right now is there's some plugins out there for some of our content creators that um, will use AI to clean up imagery or um, and those will not work on an AMD card at this time. So we have enough of that traffic that the cards, the AMD cards have to be good enough for us to justify adding that. And they're getting there, but they're not there yet. I feel like it's, so, it's like their CPUs, they're working mm-hmm. on it, they're getting there, but they're not there yet. Yeah, I agree. I think they're Ryzen one, not that hot. Ryzen two was better. Ryzen three, <laughs> and I think I think we're in that Ryzen two stage with the graphics cards. Yeah, I agree. We got another question from Marcus Hartman. Yeah, I'm curious how you'll. This will be our last one. I'm curious how you'll answer this one. How do you compare yourself? And I'll, I'll let's twist this a little bit. How would you compare Puget Systems? Uh, with HP, Dell, Lenovo, Fujitsu workstation offerings? Um, We get asked this pretty fairly often. Um, If you look at some of the components that Dell or Lenovo are offering, you go to a website and go through a configuration, you'll get a part spec. Um, 
But you, what you won't often see is the exact kind of hardware they're using. You won't see the kind of RAM sticks they're using. You won't see the kind of uh, hard drives they're using. You'll kind of see generic parts. And for us, when we compare our systems, we often see that some of those bigger bigger companies will use generic parts or sometimes the cheapest parts they can get. Um, with Puget Systems, when going back to that whole qualification process that Josh and Ruben and everybody else goes through, they make sure that if we're offering a hard drive, for example, the Samsung 980 Pros that we use, if we're offering that Samsung 980 Pro, it's because that has guaranteed to work in all our configurations, as the lowest failure rates out of all the parts we tested, as the best durability ratings, and it's going to last. So each, each individual component in our system is qualified that way, from the graphics card to the coolers, CPU coolers, to the chassis, to the GPUs. Everything is meticulously done through the qualification team to make sure that every line item on our build has been qualified to last. And that's something you cannot get from a company like HP, Dell, or Lenovo. You cannot see, and we're also transparent about it. We say we're going with this because we tested this with this and this worked. And these were the results that we went with. And here's all the stuff we tested here for you to read. We're transparent about what we do. We're honest about how we go about it. We don't try and bump you into the biggest or most expensive system. And we get the components that will last through our qualification process. And I just feel like all of those things are much, um, and it, together it feels like each machine goes through individual care, whereas it feels like some of those big box companies just slap the cheapest things they can put together on a product line and send it out. Mm -hmm. The other thing too, just kind of add a, as a post um, component thing is um, we've heard horror stories. If you try to call Dell support, what happens when something goes wrong? Um, as it, when it comes to our team, um, you can call our support line and there will be either myself when I fill in on the support team or people like Terrell or Michael or Ben, either of the Bens. We've got two Bens down there. <laughs> um, either one of those guys, they'll be there. They'll be ready to answer. And we have a rule where we have to get back to a customer within the hour that they call, within an hour of them calling rather. So we don't we don't wait. We try to get to your problems, and it's a real person that you can speak to here at our at our production team's plants. I guess, for lack of a better word, and everyone's here. And if we can't figure out something, for example, it's not uncommon for me to walk over to the production team or ping the production channel and say, "Hey, something's not right. I can't figure this out. Um, this is the build that we put together. Can someone look at it and see what I'm missing?" And then we get feedback from the people that actually built your machine. So that synergy is not something you can get if you go to a, a big box maker like HP or Dell. Just straight up, you can't get that. That is one of my most favorite things is is the the ability for our support team to literally talk to the person who put it together. Mm -hmm. They're 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 a hundred feet distant from each other. It's and I think that is so cool. It, when I was in production, it's happened before where like, hey you're building something that is very similar to what I, or, you know, I have this issue, like you're doing something very similar. Let me look at it. I'm on the phone with the, with the customer right now. Like I can tell them exactly what they're doing and it's super cool. I, I just love that personal <laughs> touch. I just love that personal touch. It makes, I feel like it makes such a huge difference. You're not just calling up some random 
person from who, who from nowhere who's just looking at a at a note sheet about your product you you are actually dealing with the, the real people who put it together who support it who work with it every day yeah and i don't know if this is common knowledge but um like when you talk to me and you're putting together a build for me i'm jotting notes on everything we talked about and there's some back-end stuff like i put notes in this in a person's build that says yeah i talked to them around this time this is what i did this is what we talked about and it's not customer facing and the reason why we do that is because when the machine if the machine were to ever make it to support then support knows this is what they put together this is why they put it together and it they can usually combine that knowledge to to help kind of suss out or get kind of get straight to an issue that they're experiencing if the expectation is not met or if something's not right yeah so a lot of care goes into every single system on so many levels yeah because sometimes it's environmental right mm -hmm. you you know that x customer is using their system on a boat and <laughs> and happen. that might have something to do with the the issue that they're calling about and that would not have otherwise been noted uh if you if it were someone else yeah, yeah. so that's really awesome that does put us a little, quite a little over our, our oh, hour no. so we'll so we'll wrap it up here no no no. it happens all the time we do <laughs> a few minutes uh, i'm not hardcore parkour about the timing so but um yeah we will wrap it up here thank you so much gino for joining us today this was great uh we had we had done some stuff that we don't normally talk about and i think that it's super cool for for the audience at large and so thank you very much for taking time out of your day to join us yeah and don't forget if you had questions about some of those parts like the um the four terabyte saber and i saw on the channel just shoot an email over to sales at pugetsystems.com and any one of us will pick it up on our team and then we'll grab it and try and answer your questions as quickly as we can Right on. And is there anything you'd like to mention or shout out other than other than that? Before we go? Um, uh, Wilson, uh, my boss, for pushing me to get on here and, and talk to you today. And Houston, you you always make this easier to do because you're you're just like easy to talk to. You're pretty friendly. But um, yeah, <laughs> I, I enjoyed being here, and now I'm looking forward to hopefully doing it again sometime. Oh, sure, sure. I'll get you on the pattern of the, the flow of things. Awesome. And I'd also like to thank the audience as well for joining us today. We do this every Wednesday on um, most Wednesdays, I say. There's a sprinkle of times where I'm not available, and so we don't do it on a Wednesday. But um, most Wednesdays, 99% of them, uh, Wednesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific. So mark your calendars. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, and yeah. We do this, we got internal experts like Gino or external experts that we've brought on like Sarah Dietschy, uh Gabby Kay, who's been doing a lot of virtual production stuff lately. Uh, all the good stuff just for you guys. Wednesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific. And uh, mark your calendars and we'll see you next time. Bye. Later.